This morning, we're going to be in the Gospel of John, so turn your Bibles to John 17. My initial plan was to take three weeks and go through John 17, but God had other plans, and I was sick, so we're going to do all of John 17 this morning. John 17, if you're familiar with it, is a prayer. It is Jesus' prayer, and so as we begin, I'll ask, why do we pray? It's an interesting question. We usually have the desire to pray when we have no idea how things are going to go or when we're in some sort of trouble. And so we go to God in prayer. We pray when we doubt. We pray when we're in fear. But if I was going to tell you that tomorrow you would begin a new job and you know this company well, you know the coworkers, you know all the details, you're very satisfied with what this job is going to be, you've known about it for months, and I say you need to pray about it, you might say, why? I know all that there is to know. I'm not worried, I'm confident. Well, when we come to John 17, Jesus prays, but he knows exactly what's gonna happen. Confident, in fact. And what does he do? He spends this entire chapter praying. The thing that makes us decrease our desire to pray, increases his desire to pray. So, so what's going on? Why pray? Let me illustrate it for you this morning. We have taxes to pay, don't we? It's coming soon, right? The 18th is, is tax day. If you didn't know that, go ahead and mark that on your calendar. You have to have your taxes done by April 18th. You get a few extra days this year. Let's say I haven't filed mine, but I, I actually did. Let's say I haven't. And this week I decided to tackle this this taxes, and as I'm preparing my taxes, I come across a situation in which I have a question, something I need an answer for, and so I spend a number of hours Googling my question, and I can't find the answer. And so I call a tax consultant, and I ask for help. Now, you need to understand, as I prepare my taxes, I'm becoming emotionally connected to this process because as I prepare, I realize that I might owe a large amount on my taxes. And I'm emotionally in, in involved in this because I don't know where that money is going to come from. And the government has a way of always wanting their money. So I become unsettled in what I should do and how I should take care of it. So I reach out to the tax consultant and the tax consultant sends me a questionnaire to fill out, a lengthy one. And I it takes a lot of time to do this. So I begin to go through this questionnaire and ask all or answer all the questions. The questions then begin to get personal, though, on this tax questionnaire. I find it very odd where the question says, How much did you spend last year on coffee? Like, why does that matter? But I take time and I fill out the, the questionnaire and I email it back to the, the consultant. I get a call just a few minutes later and they tell me they want to meet, they want to talk. And I say, That's fine, come down in my office, and we'll sit down and talk. We're not going to have coffee. <laughs> the consultant begins to say, I, I want to get to know you, and I want you to get to know me. I want you to tell me about yourself. And I sit there all confused. Why? What does this have to do with my taxes? And the consultant says, not a thing. It has nothing to do with your taxes. I just want to get to know you. And as you can imagine, friends, I say, well, that's not what I'm asking for. 
That's not why I called you. I need answers. This is serious. I, I, I'm desperate. And with that, friends, we can see the difference between our reasons for prayer and Jesus' reason for prayer. Our, our model for prayer is that we mail the tax questionnaire in hoping for help. That's our model for prayer. We, we pray when we need things. We, we pray when we need answers. We, we pray when we're lacking stuff. We pray for God to conform God to my agenda. We, we pray so that God will now know what's going on in my heart. But this is not how Jesus prays. Jesus is much different. Jesus doesn't pray to conform God to his agenda, but to conform his own heart to God's agenda. We pray to, to get God to give us things, and Jesus prays to find God in the midst of things. Jesus prays to his Father, the time has come for my life to be laid down for your glory. This is why Jesus is praying. And we see prayer as medicine. Jesus sees it as food. We, we see prayer as a, a vitamin supplement for our life. Jesus says this is a whole new diet. A whole new way of living. And prayer is not so much learning about how to get God to give us the things we want as it is learning to ask God for the things that he already wants to give us. As I study and feel convicted in reading this, there's so many riches in prayer that I haven't even scratched the surface of yet. So my desire this morning is to read the entire chapter, John 17, and spend the remaining, remaining moments walking through the text. Follow with me as I read John chapter 17, starting in verse one. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may, be, may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you, for I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them. And have come to know in truth that I came from you. And they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me. For they are yours. All mine are yours. And yours are mine. And I am glorified in them. And I'm no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I'm coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me. That they may be one even as we are one. And while I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you've given me. I have guarded them. And not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I'm coming to you. And these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world just as I am not of the world. 
I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. For their sake, I consecrate myself that they may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved me even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. This is a prayer by Jesus. It's the longest prayer that you read in the scriptures from Jesus. It's commonly known as the high priestly prayer. Maybe in your Bible it has that heading there. In the Old Testament, when a priest would go and give the sacrifice for the people, he would first pray for himself, and then he would pray for those closest to him, his friends and his family members, and then he would pray for those that he would come in contact with outside of his family. And Martin Luther commented on this prayer. He says, this is truly beyond measure a warm and hearty prayer. And he opens the depth of his heart, both in reference to us and to his father, and he pours them all out. It is so deep, so rich, so wide, no one can fathom it. This morning, my desire is to walk through John 17, and I have three points to guide our time. First is the direction of Jesus' prayer. Second is the purpose of Jesus' prayer. And third, the substance of Jesus' prayer. Look at the direction of Jesus' prayer, the purpose of Jesus' prayer, and the substance of Jesus' prayer. You know, there are a lot of gems in this chapter, and I won't be able to cover all of them this morning, so I want to encourage you to spend some time this week reading again John chapter 17, and don't just stop there. And in lieu of this week, read John 17, John 18, and John 19. And as we gather together on Friday, we'll observe Good Friday together. Before I, I launch in, though, would you join me in prayer? Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for this time. God, I ask that you would speak this morning through me. I ask that you would use your word to teach us. As we look at your prayer, your son's prayer here before the cross, may we learn, may we grow, may we understand, may we be challenged and changed in this time together. For I ask it all in Jesus' name, amen. So first thing I wanna mention is the direction of Jesus' prayer. He begins his prayer in verse one. And this is following on the heels of chapter 16 when he's gonna to describe to them what's going to happen to the disciples as he leaves, the persecution that's gonna happen and, and come into their lives. And then he transitions to prayer. And you notice there in, in the beginning of this that this prayer is right in the midst of, of the men. 
He launches in his prayer with, with men standing around him, still wrestling through all that Jesus had informed him in the prior chapters in John 13, 14, and 15, and 16, and all that was going to happen. And Jesus starts now in prayer. And he displays himself, and he displays his relationship to the Father in, in the midst. And I, and I thought as I read through that, you, you really get to know a person when you hear them pray. You really want to get to know someone Sit down and pray with them. You know, this is one of the joys that I have as a parent is sitting to hear my kids pray, right, parents? Some of the things they say, they, they really just open up their heart to you of what's going on in their life. And this is what we have here with Jesus. He, he begins to open up what's going on. And he shows the disciples, he shows us himself. The disciples get a full view of Jesus while he prays. And he's praying to his father. The disciples learn more about God as he prays. In his first words to God, the father is stating that what has been known for centuries and centuries, there's, there's never been a time when Jesus didn't know that he would die. He literally says here in John 17, Father, send me to death. If you remember through the gospel of John, there's been mentions of Jesus' hour. The first time we hear of it in John chapter 2, when Jesus was approached by his mother at a wedding feast, when they ran out of wine for the festivities. And Jesus says to her, my, my hour has not yet come. And he seems to be bothered by his mother's request. And if you remember, over a year ago, we covered that text. And Jesus is at a wedding. What's on your mind when you're at a wedding? What do you usually think about when you're at a wedding? Usually you think about your wedding that you had in the past and you're still married, hopefully, or your future wedding. That's what's on your mind in a wedding. That's what people think of in this time. And so what is Jesus thinking of? He's thinking of his own wedding. His wedding with the church, the bride. And he says, my hour hasn't come because there's something that needs to happen first. Before the wedding. What's supposed to happen before the wedding between Jesus and the bride? It's the cross. When he mentions the hour, it's always in reference to the cross. Jesus always had the cross on his mind. So when we come to John 17, now Jesus prays, knowing what will happen. You know, the cross has always been an instrument of shame, but Jesus uses it as a means to glorify God. And Jesus says his hour has come. There's so much wrapped up in that one word, hour. In that hour, he would end his labors here on earth. In that hour, he would sacrifice himself for sin. In that hour, he would fulfill so many prophecies. In that hour, he would triumph over Satan. And his hour had come. If you remember in John 12, he already signaled to his men that the hour was right before him. At the, end of, at the end of John chapter 12, when the Greeks come to find Jesus, do you remember the phrase in, in John 12, 21, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. And then in verse 23 and following, Jesus says, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. And whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. 
If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. Jesus was always on his way to death. There was never a moment where death was not on his mind. He had a mission to accomplish, and it wouldn't get done unless he died. And what's the end result of Christ's death on the cross? It's glory. It was always for the glory of God. And now most definitely did did God know us and he also sent his son to die for us and I would never take that away. But, But above all, above all, Jesus died for the glory of God. He says in our text this morning, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. And this is the signal for us as we read this story, this is the signal that the story now has drastically changed. You know those moments in movies and in books, right? Where the mood has changed greatly as the plot has shifted. This is what's happening. This moment is the hour of impending death. This hour of darkness has come and you can feel the story changing and things are gonna get worse for God's men. And the hour has come where Jesus will be ripped limb from limb. The hour has come where Jesus will be bruised. The hour has come where Jesus will be crushed, where he'll be broken. And we know about this. We read about this time and again throughout the Old Testament that this was the plan. This was always the plan. The hour means everything that has happened in Jesus' life, the emptying of himself, the coming to earth, the life, the birth, the ministry, the miracles. Everything has moved toward this hour this hour where he will be slain. And in this hour, the powers of darkness do with him what they want. In this hour, he seems to be defeated. And yet he says, in this hour, I'm glorified. You know, church, this is why we we gather together this Friday evening. It's the purpose of it. To remember this hour. And friends, it's, it's too important of an event for you to forget. There are too many things in this world to take your eyes and your ears off this event. And the cross is one of the most important events in all of history. And folks, if you're here, if you get the cross wrong, you're in big trouble. We need to understand the cross. You know, I asked... The question this week is I'm reading through John again and reading up through the gospel. Why does John, as he's writing this for us, his gospel account to us, why does he take so much time in his gospel of just the last week of Jesus' life and even the last 24 hours of his life? Why doesn't he spend more time in the rest of Jesus' life? And the reason is that for the last few days, these remaining hours of Jesus' life leads us to the cross. And we desperately need to understand the cross. It all comes down to the cross. So first we see the direction of Jesus' prayer. The second thing I want you to notice is the purpose of Jesus' prayer. There's many 
facets to this prayer. There are many aspects to what Jesus is praying for in these 26 verses. The first thing that sticks out to me that the entire prayer is the object of glory. The object of glory. He says, Father, glorify your Son so that it may glorify you. He says, I have glorified you, Father. Now glorify me in your presence. And the same glory, he says, the same glory that I had with you before everything began. And there's an interesting verse in verse 5. He says, and now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. And in that, we get a glimpse into the Trinity. God the Son praying to God the Father. We get to see communication here between the Trinity. The Father and the Son have been glorifying each other mutually forever. What, is it, what does it mean to glorify? To glorify actually means, first of all, to praise, to appreciate, to, to adore someone. It also means to serve and to please that someone. And it's all done out of love. Jesus says it twice here, but down in verse 24, I want those you have given me to see my glory, the glory you have given to me because you loved me. If, if you truly love somebody, one of the ways you, you express that love is you glorify them, you, you lift them up, you praise them, you adore them, you serve them, you please them. And we're told here that the Father and the Son have not only been doing that from all eternity, but if you actually go one chapter earlier into John chapter 16, verse 14, we see that the Holy Spirit has been participating in this also. So this is the teaching. The, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit from all of eternity have been communicating, have been pouring glory and love and joy into one another's hearts in infinite amounts and degrees that we cannot imagine. And, and that's what God has been doing since there was time and before that. Now what does that mean? It's the nature of God. It's this ancient love. God is infinitely happy. Think about that. God is infinitely happy. There's, there's really no other religion that has warrant to talk about God as infinitely happy. Eastern religions see God as, as impersonal. He's, he's a force. Remember we talked about that a number of months ago. It's an impersonal force in everything. And, and God, they say, doesn't really have a personality. So it would be silly talk about a God being infinitely happy if he's just a force. Even in some Western religions or religions in which you have a personal God, that God is unipersonal, meaning he exists just in one person. There's not three. Before there was a world, before there was other beings, this unipersonal God could not have loved, they say. Love is something one person feels and does to another person. If there's only one person... If there was just one God before anything else was created, then, then that God could not have had this love, and therefore, he wouldn't have this infinite happiness. What do two people who are in love, what, what do they do? You glorify each other. You, you praise each other. You, you tell each other what's so great about them, and you, you want to please them. You say, what will make you happy? I want to do that. What, what, what can I get for you? What, how can I serve you? That's the language of love. And what we have here are three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And these three divine persons are not seeking their own glory. But they're giving glory to the other two. 
And if you know anything about that, there's no greater joy than having someone love you, not because you demanded it, but because you, you freely receive it. You, you know that, you understand it. If you, if you demand love, it's, it's never as satisfying as when you just get it freely. And the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, these three persons are not demanding love. They're not seeking their own glory. They're, they're giving glory. There's no greater happiness than to say, what will make me happy is if you're happy. There's no greater happiness than the happiness of making someone else happy. There's no greater joy than the joy of making someone else joyful. When you put your joy in them, so when, when they're happy, you're happy. There's no greater joy than to see that you've sparked their happiness. There's no greater joy than that. And there's no greater love than this. And as we look at verse 22, Jesus is saying, I want them to, to have the glory we have. In the latter part of verse 22 and in the beginning of verse 23, I want them to have the unity, the love that we have. In verse 24, I want them to see the glory and the love we have. And Jesus is saying the whole purpose of creation and the whole purpose of redemption is not for God to get love and not for God to get adoration and glory, but to share it. And listen, this is the most important practical thing you need to realize this morning in the midst of this teaching. If this is true, if this is how God created the world, then your absolute highest purpose, your meaning, and the only way that you'll ever be happy in this life is if you glorify God above all other things. A number of years ago, George Marsden wrote a biography of Jonathan Edwards. I had the privilege of reading this when I was studying seminary, and Jonathan Edwards was a congregational minister in the 18th century who wrote a dissertation, and he, he entitled it Concerning the End for Which God Created the World. And Edwards believed the Bible taught what we've just said here. We see here in John 17. God had perfect love, perfect happiness, and perfect joy. Therefore, since he already had it in himself, he didn't create a world of persons like us in order to get love and communication and joy so much just to share what he already had. He, he wanted to share with us the infinite happiness that he was experiencing in the Trinity. He, he created us in his image Therefore, we, we will only be happy as he is happy. And how is he happy? Each of the divine persons does not demand glory and doesn't live for their own glory, but, but lives for the glory of others. And Marsden, in his biography, tries to summarize the thesis of Jonathan Edwards, which here I want to get across. Here's what Marsden puts it. He says, it is consistent with the nature of a God who is essentially loving to create a world of beings and communicate that love and delight he had in himself to them. Perfect goodness, beauty, and love radiate from God and draw his creatures to ever increasingly share in God's joy and delight. Well, how? Well, he says here, we do so as we come to rejoice in divine glory as the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit already do. We do, we do so as we come not to seek glory for ourselves, but as we give glory to God as the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit already are. And this process of growth and happiness will go on forever, eternally, increasingly, unimaginably. Do you hear what he's saying there? He says, if you want to share in God's joy and delight, if we're created to share in God's joy and delight, then we do, then we do so as, as God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit do. 
The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit already, already rejoice in divine glory. And each person does not live for his own glory, but for the glory of others. So if you want to be happy in life, you'll only be happy if you're doing the same thing. You're created to do exactly what they do and to have the happiness they have. And the only way that this will happen is if God is at the very center of your life and that you give God glory above everything else. What does that mean? Well, if we get practical, if we go back to the, even the, the Old Testament and the first commandment, worship me rather than something else. Worship me above all, he says. And, and, and notice in that commandment, he doesn't give a possibility of worshiping nothing. That's never a possibility. He says, if you don't worship me, you will worship something else. There's no such thing as worshiping nothing. It's because you're made in God's image. You're made in the image of God. And what is God? God is tri-personal. And each person glorifies the other. You will glorify something. You will glorify something in your life. And you may say, I don't, I don't agree with that. I'm a, I'm a skeptic. Or, or, or I'm an atheist. I, I, I don't do that. You may say, I'm not religious at all. But does it take away the truth of what God says? You glorify something. You are worshiping something. You were, you were made to do this. You were made to worship. That's why you exist. So therefore, for example, if you have recently felt like a failure or you've lost face or you've been criticized really strongly and it's just eating you up, do you know why? It's because you're giving more weight and glory to what people think about you. And maybe you say you believe in God. Maybe you believe God loves you in some kind of abstract way. But, but let me tell you what you're really glorifying, what you're really ascribing ultimate value to, what you're really worshiping, it's what people think of you. That's what you're worshiping. And Jesus is our example here in this prayer, in this life, that he lived to glorify God. He didn't live thinking that he had to worry about what people thought of him. He lived to glorify God. How about you? Who are you worshiping? You know, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are infinitely happy because they glorify the other and they don't seek glory for themselves. And as long as you are trying to get your own glory through success, through looks, through status, through everyone loving you, or whatever it is, if anything more important to you than God, you will never be happy. It's because you were made to worship. If you aren't worshiping God, and if he's not the number one thing in your life, not just in your head, but in your heart too, then you're cut off from real meaning. You're cut off from your real design. You're going against the grain of your own being how you're created. Because the scriptures say time and again, you were made for this. You were made to glorify God. So we've seen the direction of Jesus' prayer, the purpose of Jesus' prayer, 
And third, last, the substance of Jesus' prayer. Do you think there's a difference between living and existing? You know, the medical field can say that a person can live and continue to live, meaning their organs can continue to keep functioning even if they're not conscious. And there are many every year that have to deal with this incredibly hard decision on whether they should keep their loved ones living when they're really not with them. I think most people, if they're honest, would say that that's not living, that's just a living death. Another way of putting that is that they're existing. They're not living. They merely exist. In the passage this morning, Jesus says, Father, you have given me authority over all these people so that I might give them the gift of eternal life. Give me authority so I can give the gift of eternal life. And as believers, as myself this week reading this, I smile when I read this because I remember receiving the gift of eternal life. I experience salvation, and this is good news, and I believe it. But if I'm honest, and if I think back on when I accepted and understood, this good news cut against me. It's actually a slam against us. You realize that? It's an insult. Some gifts cannot be received without admitting that something is wrong with us. Let me illustrate it for you. If someone came to you this Christmas and they have this beautifully wrapped present and they say to you, I've been thinking about you a lot and, and I've come up with this present that I feel is your greatest need. And so I went out and I purchased it. It cost me something and I've wrapped it and I want to give it to you. And you look at this box and it's beautifully wrapped and you hear what they say. And before you open it, you're thrilled of, the, of their thoughtfulness and their care that they would think of you so much that they would go out and buy this beautiful gift and wrap it up, and you open the box, and it's deodorant. <laughs> what do you say? Thanks? If you say, thank you for the gift, you are admitting that you smell bad and accept the gift because you need it. You are admitting something about yourself. The gift of eternal life is more offensive than deodorant. You cannot receive this gift unless you are willing to see how insulting it is to you. Jesus is saying you don't have life, so therefore you're dead. He says you're, you're dead. And I want to give you a gift of life. He says you, you, you may think you're having life, but it's really not life. It's just an existence. You just exist. You're in a state of living death, he says. Jesus says, this is eternal life. This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. And this verse is the essence of what it means to be a Christian. The sum total, the climax, the point, the purpose of everything he did, his coming to earth, his birth, his incarnation, his mercies, his ministry, his life, his death. It's the sum total of everything he did is to glorify God and to give us eternal life. And plainly, as verse 3 says, if you do not know God the Father and likewise his Son, then you don't have life. 
Jesus doesn't say that you need to know about God. He says you need to know him personally. And there may be people in our area that will say that they, they, don't, know, they don't have eternal life. They, they don't know God personally, but they believe in general that they're trying to live their lives in inheritance to some moral code that's been passed on from their, their coworkers or neighbors or family. And so they're, they're trying to live their lives to the best they can. And they say, this is enough, and I want to raise my kids well, and I want to teach them to, to not lie too much. Uh, they, they can try to be honest, and, and I want them to be kind to other people. And they try and try and try to live a good life, and they think this is enough. I feel like they're moving in the right direction. Folks, the Bible is clear. That's just a facade to hide the fact that they're dead that they don't have life. They are merely existing. They're walking around dead. They do not know life and have never experienced life. To know God and to know him personally is to know life. And we do not know God any way we choose. The Bible's clear. We're, we're let in on the inside. He, he brings us in and he gives us life. And he doesn't just want life for his followers, but it says in verse 30, he wants, 13, he wants joy. It says, but now I'm coming to you and these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. And this is coming on the heels of the prophecy that his disciples will suffer and die. And if you follow down to verse 14, he says, I've given them your word, and the world has hated them because they, they are not of the world, just as I'm not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am out of the world. And Jesus knows that they will continue in the world, and he knows that this world will hate them. If you notice, even backing up to verse 9, that Jesus isn't praying for everyone. No, he's very specific. He says, I'm praying for them, those that he mentions that believe. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. There's a distinction that Jesus makes in this verse. Again, pointing to the doctrine of election. It's very clear. God chooses whom he pleased, and God cares especially for his own. And we cannot escape that in the Bible. There's passage after passage here in the Gospel of John. And there may be those of you here this morning, the teaching of election rubs you the wrong way. And if you don't like it, on what basis would you judge God? You know, this goes to the very heart of the Gospel. We're unable to save ourselves, we're dead in our trespasses and sins. Our lives are abomination. We were God's enemies, and God was perfectly just to condemn us. And yet he chooses us, and he saves us, and conforms us to Christ's image. The doctrine of election is beautiful. It's, it's glorious to consider the fact that God knows exactly what we are, what we've done. And he chooses us. He saves us. As the verse says, he's praying for us. And what does he ask the Father for? 
He asked for protection, that God would protect them from the evil one. And this world is dangerous for Christians, either for martyrdom or materialism. Jesus knows it'll be hard for us, and so he prays for us. Really, folks, he, he prays for us. All of us seated here this morning. Did you catch that in verse 20? Look at verse 20. I do not ask for these only, those disciples that he sees, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. If you're a Christian seated here this morning, rest in this, Jesus prayed for you. Think about that. You were really on the mind of God. He was praying for you. We need to let that soak in. Jesus, in the midst of the trauma of the hours before the cross, thought of you. He prayed for you, my friend. And he asked the Father to keep us in the world. Even though the evil one will seek to kill us, to destroy us, the Father would keep us. You know, Jesus had a few things to say about death in the Gospels. The death of his, his people. In Matthew's Gospel, Matthew 10, 28-31, listen as I read. Jesus speaking, he says, Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. He's saying, fear not the first death, but the second death. And he says in verse 29, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from the Father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore. You are of more value than many sparrows. And Jesus is telling his disciples who would face certain persecution and, and, and suffering and death, don't be afraid of people. The worst they can do to you is kill you. How comforting is that? And what kind of encouragement is that, Jesus? And when we, we think, well, if I go to this place, or if my kids move across the world, they could be killed. And Jesus says in this passage, is that all? And we don't need to be afraid to go anywhere in the world because the worst that could happen to us is that we could be killed. And this is supposed to comfort us. Folks, the only way that this can comfort you is if you've already died with Christ. The only way this can encourage us is if we're so focused on the eternal God that temporal human beings strike no fear in us. And if we believe what Paul says, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Clearly, the only way death can be rewarded is if dying really is gain. Jesus continues in our passage here. He says, he prays that the Father would sanctify them in the truth. What does it mean to be sanctified in truth? It means to be set apart because of the truth. It means to be, to be made holy, to set, set apart. And this can only happen because of truth. And what is truth? It's what repeated in what I've shared in this chapter, the truth of the gospel. To be holy is through the truth. To be faithful is because of the truth. To be righteous is because of the truth. And we cannot neglect this in our lives. We should be pursuing and reading and studying and preaching truth, the gospel. And this was the charge that Jesus gives to us in verse 18. He says, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. He has sent us. He has sent us to proclaim the truth. 
And the only hope for this world in which we live is the truth of the gospel. Next weekend is one of the most important days in the life of the church. It's Easter. We were just talking about that in the car on the way here to church this morning. Madeline was talking about that and we were talking about Easter and we talked about Good Friday and Madeline said, I don't like Good Friday as much as I like Easter. I like to focus on that and I agreed, yeah, absolutely. But the weekend doesn't begin on Sunday morning. For this weekend, it begins on Friday night. The reason why we have a Good Friday service is to sing and to pray and to read scripture and to hear God's word proclaimed. But the focus of the evening is the cross. That we see the cross. Are you offended by the cross? Has the cross affected you? You know, you may have grown up in the church your whole life and you know all about the cross, all about what Jesus has done for you on the cross. But the cross, if it's never affected you, if it's never offended you, to understand what Jesus did for us, then you don't understand the cross. And I'm praying that we would understand the cross this Easter season. I'm praying that you will take heart the charge that God gives for us in this chapter even to go out to the world and share the truth of the gospel. I pray that you would encourage your, your friends and your family and neighbors and coworkers to be part of our church or a church on Sunday to experience again and understand the cross. I want to encourage you, church, to spend some time reading John 17. I told you there's lots of gems here and I didn't get a chance to cover most of them. Spend some time reading John 17 and John 18 and John 19 this week in preparation for next Sunday. We'll look forward to celebrating next week when we come together on Easter. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for the privilege we've had to come and to worship together, gather together as the body of Christ. I thank you, Father, for the unity that we have as brothers and sisters in you. I thank you for the freedom that we have. God, I thank you for the protection you've given us even this week. In the midst of a world that, that truly hates the gospel, that truly hates you and the church, God, I'm affected this week of the tragedy all throughout the world, the loss of life, those that have left this world never trusting in you and entering in eternity forever separated from you. It reminds me again, God, there's still yet more to do. God, I thank you for the freedom that we have in this country to come and to gather for worship, but help us never to take that freedom for granted. God, I pray that you would use this passage this morning in our lives this week. You would pour over again your prayer and what you prayed for. I thank you, God, for the promises that we read in this, in this chapter. God, I've blown away the fact that you would pray for us. You would think of us. You would think of me. In the hours leading up to your death, you would think of me. 
God, I thank you for the promise that we have in your word that we will spend eternity with you. And God, I look forward to that day. And now to him who's able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen.